This episode is part two of a three-part conversation on scripture. Part one was last week, so the beginning of this conversation just kind of jumps into the middle of it, and we switch over to the topic of verbal plenary inspiration of scripture. Part three, unfortunately, has been lost, so this episode kind of starts in the middle of the conversation and ends in the middle of a conversation, and I don't believe I'll be able to supply you with the conclusion to this one um, due to some technical difficulties, so I apologize for that, and I, I am a little disappointed. I felt like it was the the best of the three in terms of, of the, uh, uh, the content of the conversation, but uh, hopefully we'll have some more good content for you in the future, so we'll try to make it up for you. But here's part two of our discussion on Scripture. As a disclaimer, we do criticize some attitudes that people take toward the reading of Scripture, the discipline of the reading of Scripture. And uh, we do want to be clear that this isn't a, a rejection of the idea of devotional reading of Scripture. And uh, that's a practice that we support. But there is, a, a, again, a, a, an attitude that can sometimes be problematic in that. And just I want to be very clear that that is what we're addressing. up before too long. But this idea of um, verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, right. um, that, that term means that God fully revealed the words of Scripture. So when, when Paul is sitting down to write a letter to the church, um, he becomes some kind of conduit, and every word that winds up on the page is a word that was given to him by God. And in a sense, it's not even right to call him the author because God was the author of the thing. Um, there's, uh, I, I think this actually goes hand-in-hand hand with this, this right-hand idea, this clear definitions. Because if, if you identify God as being the author of every single word in that way, then, um, then, then there can be no, uh, oddly enough, I mean, if God is the author, there actually should be mystery. <laughs> right. but, but I think in the belief system, when God has made the author that kind of author, then I think the effect is to remove all mystery. And this becomes, um, and again, I, when, I, when these words come out of my mouth, it feels like I'm saying something that, that is different than my actual position. But when when um, when these words come out of his mouth, like they are their absolute authority, they're not to be questioned. Maybe I should say they're not to be wrestled with. Um, you just you just accept it because it came from the mouth of God. And and I said wrestled with because uh, well, we've mentioned that before. Um, Israel is the one who wrestles with God. Um, he's he's not the one who accepts everything on authority, but is the one who wrestles with it. And um, it's like, like we want this uh, verbal plenary inspirational author to, to present things to us in a way that, um, that does not require wrestling because yeah. it's all certain. There is no mystery involved. Here's the commandments and now just live your life according to it. Um, yeah, so like going again back to John Chrysostom, like the reason I'm bringing him up, I guess, a lot um, isn't necessarily because I'm trying to like idolatrize him or like raise him up to this lofty height it's just because i happen to have been reading him right now in this at this time like at this present time so it's fresh on my mind but like he says a lot of things that are relevant to the discussion and it's kind of what inspired this discussion to begin with um like he, he's talking about this idea uh, relating to the gospel that you kind of have in the church in his day two remarkably modern sounding positions one is actually what you miss, what you mentioned, 
is that uh, you have people wanting wanting for scripture to have this like this perfect harmonious nature and wanting wanting to push the, forward this idea like this is the perfect word of god like letter by letter and like it's important to realize in that context that these are the people that actually spoke the language that the scripture was written in um like we don't mm -hmm. um, and most of us have no access to ancient greek um there's there's this frustration since you mentioned the language thing frustration that i have with a, a lot of people mention like well the greek word is this or the hebrew word is this um now it can be um insightful to to tap into the languages and to understand like oh there's nuances here that i missed in translation yeah. so i i don't want to say that that's a bad thing but but it has this idea which goes hand in hand with this uh verbal plenary inspiration idea that like okay um, the pastor comes up and he says the Greek word, and it's like now we've got the magic words. Right. Um, and I don't know. I mean, the whole the whole the whole affair seems like um, like it's just a, a very materialistic God who's put these these words are like materials that he's put into the world. Um, and um, and I don't know. Referencing ancient languages just just kind of. It, means like you're the guy who knows how to use this tool um which which is like this academic scholarly rational kind of thing and is is not really what the bible is trying to be but yeah um so getting back i guess on what i was saying um so like he's bringing out these people that they don't know how to deal with the contradictions and so they start inventing uh like inventing doctrines inventing excuses and inventing work workarounds in the in like the the minute details where the gospel accounts don't 100% line up with each other and then you have a, another set of people that see the contradictions and are really really bothered by them and take it to the extent of saying like well okay so this actually isn't like the perfect word of god after all mm -hmm. and it's not authoritative yeah right <coughs> yeah which which again goes to that materialistic thing that i mentioned yeah um i you know this this the, the Bible is like as good as any history book and any science book. And if we find out otherwise, which I mean, that's that I'm representing a materialistic perspective when I say that. Yeah. Uh, and a materialistic purpose, like objective purpose in the writing of the Bible. Um, and then if we find out something that that we consider to be an error, then like our faith is destroyed as a result of it. Yeah. Um, if again, if we hold to that perspective, that destroys our faith. Yeah, so, so that, what that meant in his day, in Chrysostom's day, practically speaking, was, uh, well, so the Bible is, is on the same level as the works of Plato and Aristotle and Zeno, mm -hmm. these Greek philosophers. And so, like, we're holding them up as Christians in, a, like, a nearly equal position to Scripture, which is something that nobody would actually say today openly, yeah. but people do it. Like, well, I mean, there's, uh, like, it, it's it's tricky, though. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that I that I don't like this idea of verbal plenary inspiration is that it is unaware of how um, creativity works and yeah. how writing works. I mean, if an if an artist writes a song or writes a poem, um, then he he's basically going to say. Um, this was divinely inspired. Yeah. Um, he's going to say, I don't know where this came from. 
it just it just sort of descended to me from above. Uh, I mean, not everybody uses that same language, but it's extremely common. Yeah. Um, everybody, everybody basically does. Every artist does describe the mystical process. They don't always yeah. say it's descending from above. That's what I meant by that comment. Well, but, but they they all have this sort of mysterious spiritual source for for how did where did their idea come from and how did it wind up on the page, and um, and I I think that's the same process that's happening in scripture. Yeah. So it, it's it's uh, it's possible I've misunderstood what he's saying, but it appears to me that Chrysostom is saying. Like you guys that are making both of these errors are actually making the same error. Like you're you're wrong for all the same reasons. And he says like regarding those that want there to be no disagreements or nothing that errs from like the materialist. And like he actually says it in that way. Like I was kind of surprised to find somebody in the fifth century talking about materialism, mm -hmm. like using what I would think of as modern terms. Um, but like want to have this materialist harmonization and perfection of scripture like what they're not realizing is that the apparent inconsistencies in scripture are actually the key to understand what it what it means mm -hmm. and so like pay attention to so like he's making a big deal at the beginning of matthew and how the genealogies in matthew don't agree with the genealogies in luke and uh like the genealogy of jesus that is yeah and how like Matthew actually goes on to say there are 14 generations in these three sets of things that I'm giving you, but actually one of them doesn't have 14 generations. Mm -hmm. And there's one of like his genealogy from of like through the kings of Israel actually leave out a couple of the kings, like they exclude them from Jesus' genealogy. Yeah. Even though like in the literal descent of Jesus, these guys were there. So it's like he's trying to tell you something. And also, like, then this is something I think a lot of people will recognize. It's like, why does he include these women in Jesus' genealogy, but not include all of them? So, like, that, that gives you a clue as to what he's actually doing here. Mm -hmm. It's because he's including them because of what they mean, what they imply about, like, the, uh, the nature of Christ. Yeah. And so, like, but so do the other things that we might be inclined to see as problems with his genealogy. Like, no, he's actually trying to tell us something really important. Um, like, knowing who his audience is that he's writing this book to. Um, so, like, the Jews who Matthew is writing to would recognize right away when he leaves these two or three kings out of the genealogy. It's like, well, wait a minute, where's this guy? Like, he's between these two kings that you mentioned. So why do you say that this king begat his grandson? Mm-hmm, yeah. It's like, well, the reason is because that king was wicked and evil and is excluded from the blessing yeah like from the blessed lineage um and so like he's making this point he says like pay attention pay attention to the things the the minute details that appear to disagree and don't try to set them in order mm -hmm. because when you do when you're doing that um you're losing their meaning you're destroying their meaning yeah i think it's just like it's, it's a remarkably good point um, and he, he also is making a point like there's there's a big difference between um, minor differences in details and the things actually disagreeing with each other. And he says like the Gospels don't disagree with each other on anything, even though there are some minute differences in the details. And like and I think this is this fascinating 
this fascinating approach to scripture. So like you have that also in the Old Testament. Well, um, before you get to your Old Testament, I mean, you're, you're mentioning these ancient Greeks that are arguing about this, but this is basically uh, just an argument between um, a, a fundamentalist Christian and a rational atheist. Yeah. Which is... Um, well, I mean, that's pretty like, much... Like, that. I was just so... Like, like, that just struck me so incredibly to see, like, well, wait a minute, this this debate between fundamentalism and rational atheism was happening in the 5th century. Mm-hmm. Right, and and both of those are... are rationalistic right-hand perspectives of things and both of them have this idea um, if there is a god then he is this kind of god and he can be defined in this way and if there is a god then um, we have we must yeah. have this model of verbal plenary inspiration of scripture where every single detail does match up and make perfect um, logical orderly sense yeah and, and, and there again like and that's basically what you're saying is that he like makes this remarkable statement and that it's something like you're not actually making opposite errors you're making the same error mm -hmm. yeah it's right. like that's just so like it just smacked me it's like well they are actually yeah right <laughs> they are making exactly the same error like, well yeah we've i mean we the just... atheist and the fundamentalist are doing exactly the same thing right yeah i mean there's we have this phrase the um, the village atheist and the village fundamentalist are the same person right um they're making the same errors one um, one recognized that we'll say uh, quote unquote problem in scripture and decided I'm just gonna keep twisting this thing until uh, until it says something that coheres according to the rules of reason. Yeah. And the other one is gonna say I can't make this cohere according to the rules of le of reason and I'm gonna throw out the whole thing. Um, but both of them are like they're they're making this sort of error of the right hand. Yeah, and both of them are also like making a tremendous error of pride. Mm-hmm. Um, like which is, is basically like I'm trying to conform the pattern of existence to my own understanding. Yeah. So it's and like like I was thinking while you were talking about like oh okay so be aware of my audience like my my audience personally, which is like my peers. Um, which a lot of them will think that they believe in this idea of plenary inspiration of scripture. So it's like, okay, so how do I, like, I understand, like, I think what your objections are going to be and what I'm saying here. So how do I, uh, how do I address that issue? Like, how do I try to wrap things in this way that you might be more comfortable with? And I, I think my response to that is probably, well, your position is actually idolatrous. Um, and that's probably, I mean, that's a really uncomfortable thing to say, like for me and for the person who believes in that. Um, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, the, you know, bibliolatry. Yeah. Like, that's that's the, the word that people use, which I said was, was sort of uh, jarring for me when I first heard it. Although I do think I, I sort of... I don't know. I I, did, I think I grew up with a perspective where it, it really genu genuinely didn't make sense because it the the term didn't describe anybody's reality. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I I think uh, I think again going back to Chrysostom, I think he resolves the issue rather rather well in his introduction of the idea that okay, so the whole problem is um, we're impure. The Word of God is not something that can be contained on pages. Like, the Scriptures themselves can't contain Christ as the Word of God. Like, they can't, I can't possibly, like, it's too big. Mm -hmm. um, and, like, I think, like, that for me is a really, really important point. That 
we can't we can't believe in this idea of plenary inspiration of scripture and as scripture as the only rule of faith and practice because it's not possible yeah it's just it's fundamentally not possible just owing to the fact that it's it's relying i guess you could phrase it on is it's relying on instruments of cain like instrument instruments of of a corrupt and fallen state of man mm -hmm. like writing writing isn't something that well even i mean the the idea of a system i mean like yeah yeah it, it is a is a creation of cain yeah uh, writing is probably a creation of cain um like these things it's like okay, these are imperfect things uh, that's not the same as saying they're evil mm -hmm. and that you can't you can't have institutions and you can't have uh writing because so those like look at revelations what happens in revelations is it takes it takes things created by sons and the uh by cain and the sons of cain and incorporates that into the recreated world mm -hmm. so it's like, so it's like what you have in revelations is a city which okay cain created the first city um you know, I want to I want to come up with this example popped into my head partly because we've discussed it before, but um, in in scripture you have the example of Christ, and part of his example is this um, when he before he begins his ministry he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Yeah. Um, and so this this confrontation is something that's that's very important and very formative. Um, the scripture does not contain that confrontation. I mean, like, it does not contain your personal version of that confrontation. You can read about it in the scripture. It can, it can point you out what's going on. But, um, but reading that passage is not the same as facing your own demons. Yeah. Um, and so that would be, like, one example of, like, how is it that, that scripture does not contain the thing that it's trying to, or that we're trying to say it contains. Uh -huh. um, a, a confrontation with Satan cannot be contained in a book. Yeah, right. Um, and, and, and I mean, I, I, I pull out that example. Maybe that's easier to say, that's more immediately understandable than to say um, confrontation with God or communion with God cannot be contained in a book. But like when, when when you understand one of them, then you understand the like the absurdity of the other one as well. No, like true true oneness of God is not written on a page. Yeah. So like the the Protestant uh, elevation of Scripture to the to this this point, like I think really well sums up like this idea, um, again of the right handedness of things. Like you think that you can contain God in something of your own creation. Something of man's creation, something mm -hmm. of, um, but I want to say it, something of temporal existence, something of earthly, of an earthly nature. Yeah. It's like, you cannot make the argument that the Bible is something that is of heavenly nature. Like, it is objectively not. It is literally pieces of paper with ink printed on them contained in a cover. It was like, that's like the most earthly institution well, possible even that i i want to i want to challenge your point a little bit there because um i mean it, it has it certainly has something of a heavenly nature contained within it but it can't contain the heavenly nature 
Right, but I mean, it, it is more than, I mean, every everything that's words printed on a page is more than words printed on a right. page. It's like, if if nothing else, it's a kind of extension of, of this, the spirit of the artist that wrote it. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, where you can you can encounter an author and, and get to know an author and get to uh, appreciate him and have a certain type of fondness for him. Like, like you can sort of have a relationship almost. Uh, obviously not a it's not a two-way street kind of a relationship um, but but you can have a sort of relationship with an author by reading things that that person has written mm -hmm. so I mean e everything is more than you know just words on a page with a cover wrapped around it and and I mean well, yeah, like, for, so, for like, that I'm, matter I'm speaking, we, we talked I... about sacraments a few days back um, sacraments are a few weeks back um, sacraments are just like you can say the same thing about a sacrament in terms of like well it's just bread and wine well yeah so like it's just water you're you're actually kind of making the point i kind i wanted to make okay which good is that, because that, i didn't like your point no so like <laughs> if we're looking at bible at, at the bible as in this in this idea of uh plenary inspire inspired words that are perfect in their nature it's like what you're doing is you're reducing it to the material form and removing from it the heavenly form mm-hmm and so, like, what you're doing is the thing that you you were objecting to in your statement. And so, like, that's the thing, like, also when you reduce a ritual or a sacrament um, to something that is of itself an instrument of grace or, uh, like, in itself is something of value. It's like what you're doing is you're stripping the heavenly nature out of it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like that's essentially the point I was wanting to make, uh, which you already made, so I won't reiterate it, is that... Um, it does. It contains something, like a book written by an author does not contain the author, but it contains something that allows you to connect to the author. Mm -hmm. And it's like that's. I guess the, the this formulation of scripture I'm trying to make is that it doesn't contain the word of God, but it, it's something that contains. <coughs> it contains an essence of the word of God. It contains a, like a form and a likeness of the Word of God that allows you to connect to the Word of God. Mm -hmm. But it's like you have to understand the point of the Bible isn't to be the Word of God; it's to connect you to the Word of God. Yeah. Would you say? <coughs> would you say then that it's an icon of the Word of God? Um, that's probably a good way to put it. It's an image. It's an image of the incorruptible glory of the Word of God. Mm -hmm. But it's like the image is in itself actually corruptible. So it's like in the metaphorical sense in that you can take the word of god and corrupt it and use it to say whatever you want if you're acting outside of the spirit or like in the literal sense that it's a it's a bunch of pages that can actually literally like be burned up in a fire or rot into the earth or or rewritten you know I right mean to, um to advance your own position yeah which kind of occupies the space between those two really yeah right um right Okay. So. Well, I, I, uh, um, I guess I, I'll mention just one other thing. I'll try to be brief on it. Um, I did mention like other types of literature, other creative people that are that are putting words on a page, and and tried to compare them in some way to scripture. Um, I'm going to eventually ask you what's the difference between something that's not scripture and something that is. But I want to set it up with uh, with just a statement that. Um, if if you read scripture, there um, there are we'll say like these little windows that open up that that do connect you with with God. And 
at the same time um, you might you might read some other work um, you might read you know fiction or poetry or you might uh, maybe watch a movie or listen to a song or something like that and and also um, this window opens up and and you have this sense of of the divine presence um, you have the sense that you are um, are or can be living in the will of God um, and, and again that that could be that could be something we would normally classify as a totally secular work, and and yet it has a certain spiritual power that scripture also has. So with that as context, then I'll ask like, uh, what what do you think is the the distinction between scripture and other works that have spiritual influence on people? Um, well, I think you kind of already brought it out that when you read a book, you're connecting to the spirit of that book's author, and that's the thing that like the scripture itself tries to make the point is that and this is kind of where these doctrines i guess we develop around scripture arise from is something that is actually true is that the author of scripture is actually the holy spirit um so even though even though people are like men are writing the scriptures themselves down like they themselves will make this claim that they are writing at the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, so did William Blake, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like that—that's that, the—I guess that's the place where I don't know quite where to take that argument. Is. Yeah. Right. So like I'm I'm reading, reading these other people. It's like, well, these people are pretty clearly moved by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Right. Also. Right. Um, so why don't we categorize them as Scripture? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, and and I think I think at least to a degree that that is true of almost any artist. Yeah. Um, well, no, I don't think so. Um, I think it's it's accurate to say they're moved by a spirit, but that's not the same as saying they're moved by the Holy Spirit. Um, um, yeah, but I mean, like if if you're so like um, this is if, the claim you're, you're moved by like the spirit of truth and the spirit of beauty, um, like the I spirit... still don't think it's the Holy Spirit. I think yeah. it's I think. You, you you could more accurately describe it as an angel. Yeah. Um, and, like, I want to be cautious in saying that. So, like, a lot of people will have this kind of bizarre objection to the ideals of angels and demons. Like, there are things that exist, but there are also things that get, like, heavily drawn into the realm of, like, weird occultic superstition. Okay. We'll, we'll try to keep that short for, yeah. for right now. I, I, yeah, just... I just wanted to say that. Yeah. Um, but it's... So, so that's maybe the distinction I would make in my own categorization of things is that some people are moved by the Holy Spirit to write things. Like mm -hmm. God himself gives them, like animates them to do this. Yeah. Um, which isn't the same as plenary inspiration of scripture that he's writing things out with their hand word by word. Right. Um, because like we're talking about something that supersedes words. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like they are, then, yeah, I, I, they I, are I, I then attempting it's... to express what the Holy Spirit has placed in their hearts through the imperfect vessel of words. Yeah, right. Um, and whereas, like maybe it's more accurate to say, and, and it's, it's got to sort of be filtered through their own, their own uh, understanding or their own like recognition of what is the thing that the Holy Spirit is is moving me to say. Uh huh. Um, and like maybe it's more accurate to say that these other people, like William Blake or John Chrysostom or other people we've talked to are maybe animated or inspired by like lesser angels or maybe inspired by the Holy Spirit in a less perfect 
form. Like, and like, I think that's maybe how John Chrysostom would recognize himself. Like, I don't have like this spiritual state and perfection and purity that the apostles had. Mm -hmm. So I can't consider what I'm saying and writing to be on their level. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I can kind of see that. Um, I mean, there, like specifically when you're dealing with, um, with like the writings of Paul, for example, um, or or of the apostles of Jesus, mm -hmm. um, then it's it's certainly easy as as a writer to look at that and say, well, I'm not who that person was. Um, if you look back at say, um, I don't know, like a um, Ecclesiastes or or Psalms um, or Song of Songs. I mean, like you can pick a lot of Old Testament books, um, and and you can say, well, we don't know we don't know a whole lot about the the process the author was going through on a lot of those, um, but but it seems like that that apostolic argument doesn't necessarily work quite as well. I mean, the only reason I'm pushing this, I didn't want this to be a long discussion, but for me, um, it is it is a kind of a dilemma. I think in in the interest of like uh, the right hand, in the interest of, of like some degree of, of certainty and stability and definition, then like I think we just you ha you have to have a limit. Yeah. On like okay, we're going to agree these are the scriptures, and when we're making decisions, these are the things that we're going to to consult, and other things are going to be excluded because this is a tradition and an institution, and by nature it excludes things. Well. But but aside from that, like I, I have a I have a difficulty like. Um, not not to say that we we drew the line in the wrong place, but to say like there's there's something um, inherently problematic, but necessary about drawing that line. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, which is a conflict that exists like even still within Christianity. Like there still is. There's always been, and uh, kind of always will be like this this question that you raise. Like where do you actually draw that line? Yeah. Um, kind of the answer that Christians and and the Jews before them come up with is that so like you mentioned David and Solomon, which kind of would stand in contrast to that idea that uh, the apostles have like a particular purity of heart that allows them this special connection with the Holy Spirit. Well, it's like well David and especially Solomon um, didn't possess that kind of purity of heart that the apostles had. Like they had yeah. gross like gross and obvious sin and idolatry and things like that in their lives like and like david's writing psalms like oftentimes in a very sinful state mm -hmm. um and the explanation that tradition comes up with for that is well you're excluding christ from the picture here um some like what empowers these people and gives them this purity is not like their own effort but it's the grace of god pouring out on them mm -hmm. and so and like they'll even say that about somebody like john chrysostom like i think about him again so like he has a very famous homily that's his, like his paschal sermon that is used today in the paschal liturgies in the orthodox church they'll quote this homily and and then they'll sing a song about it that like the grace of god was pouring through you when you wrote this homily. So like there's this acknowledge which I think like at first especially if you're kind of coming at it from this really rational Protestant 
kind of viewpoint sounds almost like idolatry of John Chrysostom. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think you would say the same thing about a, a, a great sermon that you heard today. You yeah, know, You would right. say, like, the grace of God was pouring through this person, or yeah. or the Holy Spirit was moving in this church service and in your message. Um, but, so, like, it is this, um, there is this recognition that, you know, you're inspired and you're, you're enabled to write these inspired works. Like, and this kind of purity that Chrysostom is talking about, like, it's not something that it's, that's of your own spiritual discipline and effort and works, but it's of the grace of God. Um, which I think is, I, that's an important way to describe what we're talking about when we're talking about the grace of God pouring through people, is, mm -hmm. like, understand it in the context of the grace of God is the thing that overcomes their impurity so that they can actually be in tune with the Holy Spirit or with the angels or however you want to, however you want to formulate that. Yeah. Um, so it's like a less uh, magical, superstitious, wizardry <laughs> idea of the grace of God coming through them. Yeah, right. Um, well, I, I, and I guess this doesn't exactly inform my question, but I asked you to start things like what you were reading right now. And then you named a bunch of books that weren't the Bible, right? But you're you're uh, you're you're pursuing spiritual growth and understanding through these books, yeah. Um, which people have always done. I mean, you didn't come up with that idea. Um, and then I didn't say anything about what I'm reading, but I've just been reading like tons of poetry and uh, and some academic works about uh, mysticism and poetry. Um, and and I guess I, I'll just leave it at that. I, I'll just say like. Uh, mysticism and especially Christian mysticism in in uh, English poetry, um, which is further removed from uh, scripture than what you're reading, but um, but I'm still like I'm I'm looking for those same sort of questions that you're looking for, yeah. And and those are the same questions I'd be looking for if it was the Bible that I was like really digging into right now. Uh huh. Um, but so, so like I'm also kind of doing it from a perspective of like I actually need to back away from the Bible for a little bit and like put myself in a position where I'm actually able to approach it. Mm -hmm. Like and like what what it, what is like my process is like kind of putting the Bible and the scriptures in a more sacred position in my life. Ironically than the people who believe in like this uh idolatrous view of scripture Man, this the one habit. thing that really bugs me about this like read your bible pray every day sort of thing is that um like you are describing a luxury that just simply has not existed for yeah. most of human history most people have not had a bible that they could read every day and most people even if they did they wouldn't have been able to read it because they didn't know how to read and so like like the idea that that reading the bible um is what what the christian faith is all about like that doesn't work for me, that doesn't work because it excludes people that are in poverty, like from a historical perspective, um, in, in poverty because they don't have books or they can't read. You know, I'm not talking about relative to the other people in their society. I'm talking about relative to the, the course of history, relative to where we stand today. Those people are in poverty, and and our riches allow us something that we say is necessary yeah. for the Christian life. And I, I just, I just, I just absolutely cannot accept that. Yeah, I mean, and then, like, the interesting consequence of that is we produce Bibles that are not beautiful. Yeah, right. Like, I was thinking while you're talking about of somebody that saw this picture of 
this old Bible that their Mennonite ancestors had and how ornate and decorated it is. And just kind of, uh, like, made a criticism. It's like, man, why did they put all of that expense into that? Like, didn't that, like... If if you have bio, if your Bibles are all like that, then that just makes them expensive, and a lot of people can't afford them, and so on and so on. And like I was thinking, like that's a really like utilitarian kind of like Soviet <laughs> socialistic. Yeah. Although it's also interesting that when when you had a Bible that was so expensive, you pass it down from generation yeah, to generation right. to generation. Yeah, like, and, and it's something that's. That, I mean, that's probably like a 200-year-old Bible you're talking about. Yeah, and like that's kind of what I was thinking during this criticism. It's like that Bible is way more sacred than yours. Yeah, right. Like they taught taught that as some they they treated that as something like enormously precious. Mm -hmm. And the reason that you have things you had them that they were so ornate in the past, like even even when they were widely available because of the printing press and things like that, they still made them really, really fancy and really, really expensive and ornate. But it's because they just had this fundamental understanding that this is the most precious thing you could possibly possess. Mm -hmm. Like any of any worldly possession, this is the this is the number one. And um, like it needs like the way we put it together needs to reflect that. And like all Bibles that people have put together until like the 20th century <laughs> have been made mm -hmm. with that understanding. Yeah. Well, now we have a lot of study notes, though. Oh, right. Which That's pretty sacred. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I make the point like it's it's replaced beauty, but it, in a sense it's like it's it's replaced sacredness. Uh, beauty is mystery. Yeah, and sacredness. Um, it's, it's replaced that with rationality. Yeah, right. Yeah, like a couple years ago, I... I I used to have a study Bible. I, somebody got it for me. I had the notes in the bottom. And I was like, I hate this. I don't want this. And so instead I just got... I, I, I looked around to find a Bible. That, and it was it's surprisingly hard, by the way. <laughs> find a Bible that has no notes in it at yeah. all. When was this? I'm curious. Um, I don't know. I actually ended up... Dad gave me one that he had. Oh, yeah. That had no notes in it. Yeah. So I never actually... <laughs> I never actually found one. <laughs> I'm sure now it would be much easier than it was then. It probably like, would be. Yeah, with like the extent to which you can find things on the internet. Yeah. Like even compared to just like five years ago. Well, also I think this this criticism of, of study Bibles, um, and I mean I don't know I I remain like enough of a of a scholar I suppose that I'm still interested in that, um, although maybe maybe not because I mean you were talking about stepping away from this discipline of Bible reading. And, um, I don't yeah. know. I'm... <laughs> well, yeah, so it's like I find myself in the position now where I feel like, uh, like I need to take reading of the Holy Scriptures. Like, one, for one thing, think of them as the Holy Scriptures, mm -hmm. something that is sacred and precious, and like something that I can't take carelessly and lightly. I can't approach casually. I can't just like, okay, when I'm, when I'm struggling with something, I just need to go and read the Bible and it'll make me feel better. It's like, no, I need to go and pray and struggle with it. And, like, I need to prepare myself to approach the Scriptures. And, like, I need to actually have the grace of God in me and that purity of heart that comes through the grace of God before I can even, before I can even esteem myself of worthy of opening the pages of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh... I, I really dug into a, a parallel gospels. I mean, just something that I was reading online 
um, you just you know you go through all four of the Gospels, sort of in order of the stories, um, and I was just looking for basically um, what is there about Jesus that I should imitate, you know, yeah. or that a person in general should imitate. But um, you know, there there's I mean there certainly wasn't this idea of like well, I'm supposed to study my Bible, and so I'm going to study my Bible. Um, and, and there wasn't an idea that um, uh, I, I'm going to find something uplifting. Um, I mean, there was like a very, very, uh, uh, you could say practical concern. That's sort of the wrong word. There was a, um, there was an, a, a pursuit of transformation that characterized my, yeah. my reading. Um, and I, I, I just find that to be very different than, I, I guess, like, the way that, um, that I felt like you're supposed to read the Bible, um, the way you're supposed to have this discipline about, about whether it's daily Bible reading or whatever. Um, I feel like it's just, it's just sort of doing your duty, um, and, and it's not interested in anything higher than that. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so, like, part of that is like in our approach to scripture and study and our religion in general we put like this this ultimate emphasis on in intelligence and in, in like intellect and rational understanding of things and i was thinking of that like so i was listening to like an audiobook version of some writings by uh maximus the confessor who's sixth century i think um and he's talking about you know he talks a lot about the intellect and at first it sounds like, oh, he like, maybe he's starting to, we've got somebody that's starting to take this uh, more rational approach to things and is putting an emphasis on your in intellect and understanding things. Mm -hmm. But then I was paying attention to what he was actually saying. It's like, no, like he's saying like your intellect is only useful if it's um, like informed and tempered and strengthened and taught by spiritual discipline by yeah. uh like by grace basically i mean that's that's very similar um because because like what he's saying ends up actually being like an almost an opposite view of what like the rational protestant fundamentalist type of christian will have which is like you need to have this intellectual understanding of things it's actually like no your intellect your intellect is actually like something that's extraordinarily dangerous and vain mm -hmm. and like unless you go through <coughs> like basically the position he comes to which later becomes the basically the the position of the Eastern Orthodox Church on theology in general is that um, you don't have any business using your intellect and being a theologian unless you live like this extreme spiritual and meditative life um, like you're not going to understand the word of God and the scriptures and the mysteries of the faith through learning and study and intellectual exercise. Like yeah. It's not going to happen. I, I've sort of alluded to, to some ideas from Ian McGilchrist in our conversations, although I haven't dropped his name before. Um, but he, <coughs> he, 
instead of speaking of, of the right and left hand, he speaks of the left and right brain. They're switched around. It's your it's yeah. your left brain that controls the right hand. It's your left brain that's the rational controlling. So now we got to flip left and right around in order to to have a conversation about about his take on things. But his idea, I'll just I'll actually just avoid left and right for uh, for the sake of making the point. Just so maybe that'll make it easier to follow. Um, his take, and and he's like a a, a science scientist and philosopher. Um, the the problem of rationality and of control and of totalitarianism and, and of definitions and all of that um, that's um, like those are those are very valuable things that he cherishes rationality and definition and all of that um, but he says that those should not be the things that are in control. When those things are in control, you have disaster. And what must be in control is the, the other side of the brain, um, is, is the side that sees meaning, that doesn't see definitions of things, but sees meaning of things. Um, and so what you're saying is, is really, really similar, actually, that um, this intellect is going to help you only if you already have the meanings of things in place. Yeah, right. Um, and like, well, that basically is, so like, this is a position that develops in orthodoxy, and it is what, like, what Maximus is talking about, is that, like, okay, so your intellect is an extraordinarily, extraordinarily dangerous thing, and that it's probably wrong, and, like, you need to seek this kind of understanding and purity, and, like, be filled with the grace of God mm -hmm. through prayer and meditation, um, and, like, yeah, and even even going I mean, so far just, as just peg that what you said just directly onto the onto the scripture. Yeah. When you approach scripture. Well, yeah, um, and that, that's kind yeah. of what I'm trying to do. Yeah, go for um, it. So, um, yeah, and I, so I, the reason I'm using the intellect is so because that's what you're doing with your approach with, to the scriptures. You're elevating your intellect mm -hmm. to right, the yeah. ultimate height. And, yeah, it's um, actually similar. I keep interrupting you, but it's similar to what you said about worship. That um, in in a lot of worship, you're focused on your own feelings. Um, your focus on yourself, and if your focus on yourself and your attention is on yourself, that means you're worshiping yourself yeah. and not worshiping God. And and you're actually saying the same thing in in Bible reading. Like a lot of times, when we're reading the Bible, what we're focused on is our intellect. Right. Yeah. Um, and it goes back, and so like he brings this out out this idea, and a, a whole bunch of other people before and after him bring out the same idea. It's an idea I really like, and I think I've brought it up before in our discussions. I don't remember if I have or not. I, I've said it a lot. <laughs> this idea that, like, with Peter, that flesh and blood hasn't revealed to you the revelation of Christ as the, as the Son of God come in the flesh. Mm -hmm. um, like, this isn't something that you've got because of your intellect, because of your study, because you've been taught it. This is something that you've come upon because the, the light of God and the grace of God has shined in your heart. Like this is what reveals the truth to you, not, not these things that are of yourself. And like the intellect is, is like it, it is a faculty of yourself. It's a faculty of your of your mind of your your existence. I guess it's it's a created mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. So you you want to be open to something that's outside of yourself. Um. Okay, well, let's try to wrap this thing up. You got any any closing words? Um, I was thinking about this. Uh, so from Jonah, um, 
we've been talking about like the right hand and the left hand being being important um and like you fall to one or the other and i was thinking about what god says to jonah when he's throwing his little hissy fit about jonah being spared but then is uh or about nineveh being spared sorry um jonah's not very happy about that because this is his enemy yeah, but then he's uh upset that this gourd plant that god grew to shade him while he was sitting there and it went in his little bout of self-pity and depression and then god dries it up in the sun and he's mad about that and so god's calling him out and he says this about nineveh he says and should not i spare nineveh that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle which is kind of interesting yeah right it's like you can't like so like you can't you can't make this discernment between your right hand and your left hand but like also between like this animal nature it's like you've got everything all confused yeah i think uh i think once <laughs> sorry this is the terrible closing thought <laughs> uh if, if i get this detail right then uh in in one of uh one of his works william blake said that that i think the spirit of milton entered into his left foot and yeah. uh and and was like kind of guiding the creative process and um i mean it, it's it's like sort of this comical image but it's like it would be it would have to be the left foot yeah the the spirit of a great author of the a great poet of the past is not going to enter your right foot right um anyways i like i said that's a <laughs> terrible note to close on but yeah that that confusion i'll just i'll just reemphasize your point that confusion of the right and left hand um in in our world a lot of time that means calling one or the other those evil um not understanding the nature of the thing yeah um thank you for listening if you would like to support this podcast then all that we ask is for you to subscribe Think of a friend who might enjoy it and share it with them. And please join us again for another walk in the woods, another conversation, and another journey in the sacred life.